All right, so as you know, we, we're, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there. Um, let's just do a quick flyover recap of where we've been. And then we'll be in the first seven verses of chapter 3. So, you know, God creates this, this world in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we learn many things about God primarily through these two creation accounts. Number one, that he's cosmic, he's transcendent. He's all-powerful, but he's also imminent. He's very close. He's personal. And so God introduced himself not just as Elohim, but as Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh being the personal name of God. And God creates this creation, and then there's this garden in the center of his creation. And in that garden, he puts two people, Adam and Eve, and he bestows on them both an occupation and a status. You are to be priests. You are to protect and guard and priest my garden, but you're also Status. Your status is that you're made in my image. You are kings and queens to rule and subdue this good creation that I have given you. And you're to do that in relationship with me. And so life is good for Adam and Eve. God has given them every tree that they could possibly need that is pleasing to the eye and good for food. He's created the animals. He's given Adam the ability to name the animals and all the animals are named and then God creates sex and marriage and our focus shifts into this newly wed couple and I love how the creation account ends in verse 25 of chapter two. It says that Adam and his wife were both naked And they felt no shame. But what we'll see is as we turn the page into chapter 3, a new character slithers in. And this thing begins to spiral out of control. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. And as I read this, if you remember a few weeks ago, how we discussed the two names for God, Elohim and Yahweh Elohim. I want you to just think as I read this how these two names unlock a little bit of what's going on here. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that Yahweh Elohim had made. He said to the woman, did Elohim really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but Elohim did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for Elohim knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like Elohim, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You may be seated. Father in heaven maker of the universe, spirit. We pray that you would fill us yet again with your spirit, by your spirit, and that you would open our eyes, that you would remove any scales from sin that are keeping us from understanding and perceiving the goodness of your word, and that you would allow us to see the bad news 
before the good news comes, the bad news that we're broken, that we're sinful, and that we need you, Lord. And we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to receive this this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every single person in this room this morning has experienced this week the traumatic aftermath of what we just read in these seven verses. Every single person in this, this room this morning has experienced the aftermath of these verses in ways that we absolutely hate. The fall has touched our lives, every single one of us. And if you want to understand what is so wrong with the world and how it went so wrong, you need to start with this book and focus in even more on this chapter in the third chapter of Genesis. And I want us to notice as we begin this morning the framing of this text. It kind of acts like a picture frame because in verse 25 of chapter 2, we get that Adam and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. And then we get six verses. And then the bottom of the picture frame is verse 7 in chapter 3, which says that now Adam and Eve were both naked. Their eyes were opened. And rather than being unashamed, they are now so ashamed that they have to create these new garments out of fig leaves to cover up. So how do we go from shameless to shame? How do we go from naked to clothing ourselves with itchy fig leaves? How do we go from this perfect paradise to paradise lost, which we'll talk about a little bit more next week? What happened in these seven verses that just so happened to flip the world upside down? It starts with one word, and we got to know this word intimately. It's the word sin. Sin is this idea that we were all infected at this moment with something that disorders our desires, clouds our judgment, separates us from one another, and most importantly, our creator, and introduces evil into the world. Sin is real. You need to know that. But we live in a world that is frustrated because it cannot accept this reality. See, when you believe that people are just generally good and if we just got rid of a few bad apples and legislated the right things, then the world would be okay. But the result of this is that we live in a perpetually frustrated political world by which we keep trying to legislate sin away, but that will never work because it will never get to the deepest core of our need, which is deep in the bowels of our soul that every man and woman in this room is infected with the cancer that is sin. Sin is what's wrong with the world. Sin is what's wrong with us. Sin is what's wrong with you. Sin is what's wrong with me. We're jacked up, screwed up, messed up. And Genesis 3 tells us how this happened. What I want us to see this morning is that sin enters... When we reject God's word, when Adam and Eve reject God's word by following their own desires, resulting in the loss of Eden. Sin enters when we reject God's word, follow our own desires, and the result of this is that we lose Eden. And you might like this message this morning, but I need you to know that it's true. 
And this thing starts because God creates these little miniatures of himself and he wants to be in relationship with them. And so he gives them freedom. He doesn't make them robots. He gives them freedom to make decisions and choices for which they need wisdom for those choices. But he also gives them freedom and choice to actually love God. For love to exist, we have to have a choice. And so God gives them this tree, the tree of life, from which they get their very life, but then he also gives them the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it sits restricted. Why? Because this thing is set up in relationship. God doesn't want to just program their brains like a robot. He wants them to learn in relationship with him, like a kid would learn as they progress through the school year. God doesn't just create the world and then step back from it as if he's detached from it. No, he creates the world and creates his people to live with them, to be involved in their lives. And so this restricted tree represents this constant choice that Adam and Eve are going to have. There are two different ways of learning good and evil. I can take it for myself because it's good in my own eyes, or I'll allow God in his own time to give me the knowledge of good and evil so that I might rule like him be a good reflection of him in relationship with him. The problem is that into this story slithers a new character, the serpent. And the serpent stands opposed both to Adam and Eve, but most importantly to God. And I need you to know this morning that this isn't just a snake. This is Satan. And like this crested farm road that has two equally dangerous ditches on both sides, C.S. Lewis says there's two ways and two erroneous ways to really think about Satan. Either one, we give him all of the credit for all of the wrong in the world. We think about him far too much, or we fall into the other dangerous ditch, which is to pay him no attention at all, pretend that he doesn't exist, that he's not real, that he's not against you. And both of these things can have grave consequences when we begin to believe them. But if we stay on the line of scripture and we hold to that line, we are told that Satan is real. <laughs> he stands not only against God, but he's against you, and he hates that God has put his image and bestowed it on you. He exists to kill, steal, and destroy, and he would love nothing more than for the world to descend into utter chaos, and we see it start right here in the third chapter of God's word. But more than who Satan is, I want you to see how he works in this passage. How does he work? You get a baseball bat out and start swinging it at Adam and Eve? No. He just uses his words. And Rod pointed this out last week. According to this guy named Saul Alinsky who wrote Rules for Radicals, he claimed that whoever controls the language has all of the power. And I believe that he is right because think about the goodness of words when they're spoken in goodness. God creates the world by his very speech and then he gives speech to Adam and Adam gives the animals identity by naming them. But if the reverse is also true, our words can simply create these worlds in which anybody can believe anything. It can turn anyone or anything into a monster. It can set family feuds up. It can even start world wars. This is the power of our words. And now the serpent harnesses the power of words and uses language to introduce confusion and to draw Adam and Eve under his control. This is the world's first gaslighting. 
Now, that word has been used and abused far too much to basically mean anything that I don't like that you say is you gaslighting me. That's not what that means. But when we look at the classical definition of gaslighting, which is where false information is presented to the victim, making them doubt their own memory, perception, and quite often their own sanity. Why? For the sake of control. That's exactly what the serpent is doing. So I want us to see three things here, and it all has to do with God's word. First, Satan twists God's word. Second, Eve confuses God's word. And lastly, Adam is silent with God's word. He doesn't speak God's word. And Satan starts by saying, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Are you sure, Eve? Are you sure that God didn't say something else? Can you feel that? Can you feel the snake today? Did God really say? Did God really say that you are to love your enemies and bless those that persecute you? Did God really say that whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me? Did God really say he created mankind in his own image, male and female, and only male and female he created them? And they were fearfully and wonderfully made. Did God really say that every human being was knit together in their mother's womb and that is where life begins? Did God really say that? Did Jesus really say whoever curses their brother or sister is cursed? Whoever has lust in their eyes has committed adultery? Whoever gets and harbors anger in their heart might as well be a murderer. Did God really say, I am, through Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not one, will come to the Father except through me and me alone. Did God really say that? Are you sure that God said that? Can you hear him today? He's speaking. Speaking just like he did then. See, the temptation that Adam and Eve face is the same temptation that we face today, which happened this morning, it will happen tomorrow, it's happening right now. Satan exists to sow seeds of doubt in your life about God's word. Because what Satan is really doing is he's trying to put Eve in a position where she gets to be the authority and judge over God's word. God's word's not authoritative. It's subject to what you think, Eve. You decide what God said. You decide good and evil for yourself, which is exactly what she does because while Satan twists God's word, Eve confuses God's word because notice her response. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So God says, you may eat of every tree in the garden. I gave you everything that you need. Eve just says, he gave us the trees in general. God said, you don't eat of the one tree. Just don't eat of that one tree. And Eve says, God said, you can't eat of that tree and you can't touch it. And then God said, my name is Yahweh. This is my personal name. And Eve, in this chapter, distances herself 
from the personal love and relation of her creator, and she uses the impersonal name only, Elohim, to describe God. What's going on here? In one full swoop, Eve magnifies God's strictness, diminishes his love, minimizes his generosity to give them literally everything that was good for food and all that they need, and then she makes God out to be way more harsh than he is. Well, I can't have that one. Not only can I not have that one, but he said I can't touch it. God never said that. And do you see how crafty the serpent is? He comes in and he just twists God's word a little bit, and Eve takes it and she runs with it, and we get the Bible's first Pharisee. But what I want to know is where the heck is Adam? Which I used to think Adam was like way off somewhere. And he wasn't with Eve. But if you read verse 6, unfortunately that's not the case. Because Adam is right next to Eve. Bro, what are you doing? You're off in la-la land. I mean, come on. His wife is being tempted by the serpent. And where is Adam? Right there. Doing nothing. Not speaking God's word. So while Satan twists God's word, Eve confuses God's word. Adam is silent. And his silence is deafening. And then I had to ask the question, well, why does all of the New Testament blame Adam for original sin when Eve was the one that took the fruit. And then I examined chapter two and I realized that God gives the mandate to not eat of this tree to Adam, not to Eve. So it's speculation, but I think the only way that Eve would have even known the mandate not to eat from that tree might have and probably was from her husband, Adam. But more than that, Adam's actually the one who I think sins first. Because he's not protecting. He's not priesting. He's not guarding the garden, let alone his newfound spouse, Eve. And when he should have been reminding her to speak God's word to the serpent, he remains passive and silent. And I got a question for you men in this room. Especially you men that are married. Do you have the courage to speak God's word when you see lies in this world? When your wife comes home and she's feeling insecure about who she is, do you shower her with the word? Do you remind her who she is with the word? Do you speak God's word over her? Or more than that, how do you just speak to your spouse in general? Would you be embarrassed about how you talk to her today? Would you be ashamed of it? Don't be a coward. Speak God's word over your spouse. Wash her with it. Love her with it. That is the type of men that this world needs more than ever. Not those that sit back, chase comfort, and sit back here in passivity, but those that enter into the chaos, they enter into the fight, and they use God's word to do it. Because how could all of this been fixed? You know, we're so quick to blame God. We say, where is God? Why is he silent? God has already generously given them his word. This is when the world needed a preacher. But instead, Adam is silent. 
and he sits back, and while Satan twists God's word, Eve confuses God's word, Adam is silent about God's word, and it puts Adam and Eve in an incredibly vulnerable position. And I need you to know that this conversation between the serpent and God's people is alive and well today. Look at the church. Its most basic doctrines are under assault. Even the most basic biological realities revealed in God's good creation and his word are under assault. The gospel is under assault. Orthodoxy is under assault. You and I are under assault. And this is where I want to just make a caveat. Like if you're one of those people that's like the world's going to hell in a handbasket because you can feel the reality of this spiritual war that's raging around us, this war started in Genesis chapter 3. It's been raging ever since this chapter. In fact, this is why Paul in Ephesians 6 says this. I think we have a slide. Um, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. And then he goes on and talks about all of these defensive pieces of equipment that we can put on. The armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. But we have one weapon and only one weapon. And he says this. It is the sword of the spirit. The word of God. We have one weapon in the fight. A spiritual war that whether you want to believe it or not. It doesn't matter if you don't believe it. It's happening. And you'll be caught totally unprepared if you're not aware that there is a war raging and that you have actually been given armor. But more than that, you've been given a weapon. And that weapon is the word of God. Do you know it? Are you using it? How well are you acquainted with that weapon? You want to guard the garden of God? We guard it with God's word. You want to guard as a small group leader? Speak God's words. You want to guard as a husband? Wash your wife with the word. You want to guard your kids? Raise them up with the word. You want to guard your heart? Saturate yourself in the word, but not because you have to, but because you get to. See, I think if Adam and Eve would have had Psalm 19 on their lips, they would have never been in this precarious position. I know the Psalms weren't written yet, okay? But if they did, (laughs) they would have known this. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from a honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. This isn't a have to. This is a get to. Have you tasted the sweetness of God's word in your life? Have you taken it in? Has it fed your very soul? We gotta have God's word. We need the word. We can't forget the word. This is how we fight in a world 
where a spiritual battle is raging around us, we need the word. And at this point, we'd be tempted to think like, okay, so my only adversary is the fact that I have this force that's against me in the serpent, and it would be so tempting to let ourselves off the hook. But sin doesn't just enter the world when we forget God's word, but when we are dragged away, when we are following our own desires. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. <laughs> so Eve not only entertains the serpent, she actually aligns with the serpent and then without verse 6, like I said, we'd be so tempted to think, okay, that's my only problem, but she takes she eats, and then she gives, and then there's still this moment of choice left for Adam, but he takes, and he eats. And I want us to feel the weight and responsibility right now of our decisions. <laughs> all of Eden can be lost with one decision. And we're all just a handful of decisions, if not one decision away from reintroducing utter chaos into our worlds. I mean, you know this. I know this. But I didn't know this until I sat on the cold bench of Northfield Police Department when I was 18 years old after getting arrested for my first DUI. The weight of one decision, one decision can throw your entire life into chaos. But then I had to take that farther this week because it's not just one decision before Christ, but now one decision in Christ we can still be deceived and we can still make a decision that aligns with the serpent instead of God's word. And that one decision can throw our entire world into chaos. Do we feel the magnitude of our decisions? This is where personal responsibility co comes in. But I want us to see that all decisions don't just start with decisions. They start with desires, which is why verse 6 says that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And what's interesting to me is that in this text, the Hebrew that is used for the word desirable or desires right there is the same word used in the 10th commandment for you shall not covet. So for Eve in this moment, she's not simply wanting that fruit. She needs that fruit. She's craving that fruit. She's lusting over that fruit. Coveting is putting anything in the place of the throne of our heart other than God. It's needing anything or anyone more than God. And that's what Eve does because God has given her everything that she needs. In fact, he's given her himself and yet she sees that this fruit is desirable. Desirable, but it's this craving and lusting. And this is why Jesus' brother says in James 1, verses 14 to 15, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, and then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. In fact, James' brother Jesus says that the cares of the world, the deceitfulnesses of riches, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. So you see the reciprocal relationship that scripture is setting up. 
We have desires that choke out the word, and then as we spend less and less time interacting with God in his word, it creates more desires and gives the fertile soil for those desires to grow, and then it continues. But the desire itself was put in our guts by God. This desire isn't evil. It's our evil desires that are evil. But God says to Adam and Eve, I created you to desire fruit. I, desire, I, I created you to have desires, but I didn't just create you to follow them blindly. Your desires are supposed to lead you to me. Adam and Eve, every time that you would eat of the tree of life, you would be reminded that all of your life comes from me. And when you would withhold from eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you would be reminded that all of your wisdom, all of your decisions need to submit themselves to me and my good and perfect will for your life. So that when we have desires for good things like security and safety and love and acceptance in life, that we would be able to know that we were actually created by a heavenly father that wants us to find our love and security and happiness in him. See, this is why most sin actually starts with a good thing, a good desire. But what I also want to see is that decisions don't start with desires. They actually start with desires which begin with our eyes. So there's a third component to it. We have decisions. Decisions are fueled by desires, and our desires are fueled by our eyes. Eve saw that the fruit was good. Her eyes were open. It was desirable for her eyes. It was pleasing to her eyes. And you know this, and I know this. Marketers know this. We are visual people. In our consumeristic age, ad agencies and companies know that if they can just get something in front of their eyes, they know that they can make you want that thing. <laughs> and think about with these supercomputers in our pockets how this is just more prevalent than ever. Constantly before our eyes are advertisements, are pictures of things that we're drawn to obsess over, or crave over. <laughs> I mean, this was an indictment for me this week. Uh, on the Locker Room podcast, they talked about last week how we have been doing a little bit of work on our house, and AI knows this. Google knows this. The eye in the sky, Google. And it's amazing how my phone all of a sudden this week just started showing me uh, multi-million dollar houses, and all of a sudden I was like, I hate my house. <laughs> my house stinks. And my house doesn't stink. It's beautiful, and it's a wonderful place to raise my two girls and be with my wife, and it's so much more than we could ever ask for or imagine. But all of a sudden, when I see all of these things, I start to covet, and my house that was once a blessing now is a curse, and I hate it because I want that thing. And you know this. Whether it's a picture of a man or woman that isn't like the current man or woman that you are with, or it's a thing that you don't have that you think if you did have, you would be satisfied. Whatever it is, our desires start with our eyes, which is why Jesus, in fact, says that when our eye is healthy, our whole body is healthy. But when our eyes aren't healthy, our bodies are not healthy at all. Because the eye is the lamp to the body. So what are you looking at? If you took out your phone this week and you went to the Screen Time app, if you have an iPhone, and if you don't, you're a weirdo. Um, but I'm sure they have something like that. <laughs> Go Apple, right? Um, speaking of apples, 
All right, that <laughs> took you a second, took you a second. But I want you to go on your phone. Gosh, that's nerdy. I am a dad. Okay, but if you took out your phone and you looked at the apps and the amount of screen time that you're putting on it, what would it say about your life? And then what would it say about the health of your eye? And then how would that directly correlate to the actions in your life, how satisfied you are with life? Have you ever considered that? Because again, the eyes unlock our desires and our desires lead to decisions and those decisions when sinful create chaos in the world. See, for Eve, it was the fruit that God said that she didn't need. Eve, you don't need this fruit. Just trust me, you don't need it. At least not right now. But she coveted it. She wanted it, so she took it, she ate it, and then she gave. And the result is the beginning of the cataclysmic loss of Eden that starts in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. See, the first part of losing Eden is the introduction of shame. And I almost don't even have to talk about shame because you know what shame is when you feel it. It's just in us. Since the beginning of the garden, shame is this feeling of utter and complete nakedness and exposure by which there's this intrusive force that creates chaos in our mind, isolation in our relationships with others and God, and uh, just chaos in our soul. And words can't do it justice because... We just see the effects of it, don't we, right? Like Adam and Eve, they, they, they feel the shame and so they make pants for themselves and they sew these fig leaves together and they cover themselves and that's what we do with shame, right? Shame is anything that stiff arms someone else from seeing me that acts as the shield to block out other people. It's this feeling of utter isolation and the proof and result of the shame that started here in Chapter 3 of the Bible is that we're all wearing clothes here today, but the reality is that we now do this in much more sophisticated ways, don't we? Have you ever felt this constant need to overcompensate or overachieve as if you need to prove to the world that you are enough, that you have enough, that you're pretty enough, that you're smart enough? I have. When you fail... And you fail big time, do you feel the constant need to justify your failures or blame other people for them? Maybe you've just accepted your shame. You wallow in it, descending into self-loathing and self-pity, which is actually the fertile soil for a lot of depression in life today, which is exactly where the enemy wants you, rendered ineffective. Because you're not able to even do anything. Because you're so depressed. But that depression... Not always, but often starts with shame. Or maybe you're a person that's perpetually angry. You're always one trigger away from blowing a gasket. Or maybe you just avoid your shame. We all do this. Numb out, check out, buy the next thing, click the next video, swipe the next reel, take the next drink, Shame is the fertile soil for a lot of addiction in life. Which ironically just drives people into more isolation where we feel like we have to stiff arm people more and more. We have to block them out more and more and then we become locked in the prison of sin that begets sin that begets sin which is exactly what the enemy wants. 
What are you covering with this morning? It's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's worthless. You know this, I know this. And it never will be good enough. We need a better covering. And I want to ask the question then, so what is a good enough covering? (laughs) And is there any hope in regating Eden? And how do we actually reverse all of this? And I think that God actually provides this hint in this very chapter, 14 verses later, in verse 21, which reads this. And the Lord God, there's his personal name again, Yahweh Elohim, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now you're going like, what the heck? What do you mean? Guys, this is the gospel in the third chapter of the Bible. God says, you eat that tree, you're going to die. But are Adam and Eve the first one to die? No, they are not. (laughs) Because for God to clothe them, which is exactly what you need, you need to be clothed by God. You cannot clothe yourself. A sacrifice had to be taken. This animal is the first death that we know of in Scripture. There had to be an animal slain. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. God took the life of an animal. Then he rips off these skins and he uses them for clothes for Adam and Eve. And he says, I'll clothe you. I will clothe your sin. I will clothe your shame. And here it is. Three chapters into the Bible. And see, this is what God does. God provides the sacrifice, which is why Jesus is called the new Adam in the New Testament, who faced every temptation that we face. The Bible says he faced every temptation that we face. In fact, we see him tempted right at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. And Satan tempts him in every way. Do what feels right. Take that food. Do this. Do that. And every single time, you know what Jesus says in return? It is is written. Man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that flows from the mouth of God. And he submits to God's word. And then, in a different garden test, the garden before he was crucified, the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is tempted to give way to all of the desires that he is feeling in his bones, leading to anxiety. He's sweating drops of blood because he can feel the cup of God's wrath that is coming towards him like a freight train. And what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. He submits every single desire to his heavenly father, but not because he has to, because he knows the love of the father. He trusts the father, and because of it, he is crucified, and the snake is stopped, and every person is now able to receive the full forgiveness of a God who is crucified on their behalf. And the cross says, not only is there a solution to your sin, but there's a solution to your shame. Because as God hangs on that cross, he says, I see every single thing that you think I don't see, that you don't want your friends to see. I see it all, but I love you so much that I'm giving my life. Do you know that love that takes care of all your sin, all your shame? And he hung naked when we should have been. He took the punishment that we should have. 
And this is why Christianity is different from every other world religion because every other world religion says, you gotta clean yourself up, but not Jesus. Jesus says, you come to me filthy and I will clean you. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you white as snow. Somehow the gospel has this purifying, bleaching effect on our lives that even though we are sinners, he has made us saints. He says, I will hunt you down because I love you. And this week I saw this quote from Rest in Peace, Friends, star Matthew Perry. He died recently and he said this, alcoholism didn't care that I was on Friends. Your alcoholism wants you alone. It wants you sick and it wants to kill you. I think about it like the Joker. The Joker just wants to see the whole world burn. So does alcoholism and addiction. So if you are struggling right now, and it took decades of my life to reveal this, I pray you find someone to talk to, be honest about this with, because the secrets are what kill us. Now let me read this again, but replacing alcoholism with sin. Sin didn't care that I was on friends. Your sin wants you alone. It wants you sick, and it wants to kill you. I think about it like the Joker. The Joker just wants to see the whole world burn so does sin and addiction. So if you are struggling, and it took decades of my life to reveal this, I pray that you find someone to talk to, be honest about this with, because the secrets are what kill us. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. But in the gospel, God puts on flesh and bone and he gets in your sin and then he wants to use his church as an incarnation of himself to get in your sin with you. The only place your sin can fester and grow is in the dark. But when you bring it into the light and you confess to a brother or sister who loves you and cares for you, who can preach the gospel to you, you experience transformation and healing. And this is why in the gospel we are free to actually acknowledge our sin, which leads to guilt, not shame. And that godly guilt leads to sorrow, which leads us to turn and to repent and receive the gospel yet again. Don't you see? This is not just a theological proposition. This is a practical answer. You don't have to be ashamed of your sin anymore. He took our shame. He took our sin. And he crucified it. But then he defeated it because he rose again so that we would see he is the solution for all sin. He is the solution for all shame. But not only that, the reverse of what we've been talking about is true this morning. If sin enters through that Adam and grace and truth enters through this Adam, Jesus, and he provides a path back into a garden, but it isn't the Garden of Eden. It's the Garden of Eden 2.0. It's a garden city. It's something even better than Eden. It's what your hearts and my hearts long for, a place with no sin, no sickness, no suffering, no pain, no disease, no depression, no anxiety, nor no addiction, where every tear will be wiped, where every sin will be absolved, where all shame will be cast out because we will be in the perfect presence of our Heavenly Father yet again. Father in heaven, we need to receive this 
anew this morning. Your gospel, the gospel, that says that we are known and we are loved, that we are seen and we are chosen, and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, you died for us, and that we have been saved by your grace. So Lord, I pray that if there's anyone this morning that is wallowing in their shame, or even struggling with addiction, that they would come to your altar and they would lay that down, receiving your grace and mercy that we see through your son, Jesus, who is not just the solution to the Genesis 3 problem, but is actually the revelation of who you have always been. You are a father who loves and sacrifices for your children, which is what you did in Genesis chapter 3. So God, I pray that if there are any, and I know there are people in this room that have not received the basic and pure and simple gospel this morning, that you love them and that you gave yourself for them, that they would do that this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.